Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, November the 7th, 2022. And as the year gets to its end, we're beginning to try to make sense of many of the currents, the structural currents of the world economy and politics and culture. We just did a show earlier today with Andrew Hill from the Financial Times talking about the FT business book of the year, down to six, uh, four of which have actually been on the show. Um, and they all talk, I think, in different ways, these four very impressive business books about the profound shift, the structural reformation or revolution, reinvention of the world economy. Did one with the um, Cambridge University economic historian Gary Gerstle on what neoliberalism is. Another with Sebastian Malaby um, on the reinvention of venture capital. Uh, a third with Chris Miller um, on the growing chip, computer chip war between the United States and China. And a final one with Helen Thompson on whether or not we're at an end of globalization and we're returning to the 1970s. Her book is called uh, Disorder. Um, and uh, the, uh, the Miller book is also particularly interesting. It's called Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Um, and the Gerstle book, which I probably refer to more than any other book, actually, that I've covered over the last year, talks about the end of what Gerstle calls the neoliberal order. He doesn't know what's coming next, but he knows it's at an end. In a different kind of way, perhaps, we're at the end of what some economic historians call globalization. And my guest today has a new book out called The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. I think the book is just out, so it missed the FT Business Book of the Year for 2022. Maybe it'll be in the shortlist for 2023. Uh, the author, uh, I'm thrilled to announce, is with us, Shannon K. O'Neill. Uh, she's also a distinguished academic, uh, works on the Council of Foreign Relations. She lives in New York, uh, and she's joining us now. Uh, Shannon, does your book suggest that we're at an end of the age of globalization? Or, or am I misunderstanding the way you use this term in your title? So the way I use the term in the title and, and, and calling it a myth is actually that we have not seen as much globalization as we often think, or as often portrayed, I would say, in the you know mainstream media or sort of the conventional wisdom. And when you look at these last 40 years, yes, we've seen a huge increase in trade. We've seen increases in flows of money all over the world. But there have only been about two dozen economies who have really seen a transformation uh, of their overall economic base during this 40 years. Uh, so that's one side. So not that many countries have participated. And then the other thing we've also seen is that when you saw trade go abroad, when you saw money go abroad or ideas and patents and royalties and things like that, when they went abroad, they usually didn't go to the other side of the world. We can find examples, sure, of globalization, but more often than not, when you saw trade and, and, and money go abroad, it went more regional. It went to countries nearby. And you know, one statistic that brings us home is the average good that is traded that goes across a border it goes about 3,000 miles. So that is 
about the distance between New York and Los Angeles. That is not getting you to Shanghai. So you combine these and not that many countries participated. And when they did, they really went more regional than global. And you get what I call the globalization myth is that we are not, globalization has not been the force that it's often portrayed to be so great uh, over these last 40 years. So it's a fascinating argument. Um, my next question, and I'm sure you've given some thought to this is, is someone purposely or are there a group of people purposely peddling the globalization myth? Or is it something that we simply didn't give a lot of thought to and we just took it for granted? We have seen an internationalization, that's for sure. And then the other thing that's very different this round of globalization compared to those in the past is what is being sent abroad has changed significantly. So it is now less final goods, you know, it's not a car or a bottle of wine or pick whatever it is that, you know, you, you would buy from other places. It is now what economists call intermediate goods. And about 75% of what's sent around the world are inputs that go into final products. So this is global supply chains. This is what international supply chains are, is these pieces and parts that are moving around, bringing economies of scale, bringing specialization for the products that then end up with the final consumer. So I do think it's not that there's a willful misunderstanding or you know a cynical manipulation. I think people don't look at the data so much and they do see things coming in from abroad. They do see imports. They see products that they never would have had or never had at those prices uh, if you hadn't had this internationalization. But what is hidden, and I think this is hidden more um, because of the way we look at these things. We have these great examples of globalized companies, right? Boeing sources from 58 different countries. Yeah, so we it, did a show on Boeing actually about how badly managed a, a company. Yeah, there's is. a fascinating book about Boeing and, and much of this. But we tend to look at the Boeings and we don't look at the tens of thousands of other companies that yes, did go abroad, but really just went next door when they were selling various parts or they were supplying other companies or they're looking for the next consumer that wasn't within their borders. So I think it's more hidden uh, in that it's not as high profile as globalization. Shannon, uh, let's go back to the book uh, by Chris Miller, a uh, fascinating book. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to read it, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. I'm a it few chapters it. in. It's a great book. Yeah, I mean, it addresses the whole issue of this growing chip war between the United States and China. It talks about Taiwan and India and a number of other countries in the world. Are you suggesting then that the chip war isn't the, the central reality of today's economy and that uh, most uh, most economic battles are regional rather than global. So, what 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 is what what does your book suggest then about the way in which we perceive the American relationship with China? So here I think two things, and in reading the Chip Warren, as I said, I'm a few chapters in, and it's a brilliant book. So I highly recommend it to everyone. Um, as I was reading, especially his chapters on Taiwan and on Asia and how semiconductors were brought in by Texas Instruments and other companies, that is all true. Um, but alongside that, and you know, I do a historical chapter on Asia and the regionalization of Asia that started right at that time. And as much as U.S. companies were coming into Japan and, and Taiwan and elsewhere, Actually, Japanese companies then very quickly went out and started outsourcing into, at the time, very poor South Korea and Taiwan, into Hong Kong and other places. And that investment, that foreign direct investment, that outsourcing, 
uh, really was the beginning of regionalization. And then once South Korea and Taiwan grew in terms of their economic output and their value added, they too went and began outsourcing to Malaysia and Thailand and later to China. In fact, the foreign direct investment around Asia is much more Asian than it is American or, or European. And so what does this say about China? What this says is the United States in many ways is not competing against China in terms of its economic output, in terms of its products. It's competing against Asia because Asia is so intertwined. And over this period from 1980 to today, intra-Asian trade, so the trade within Asian countries, has grown from about 30% to over 60%. So you see this integration um, that has happened in Asia. And just a comparison, if you look at North America, so US trade with Mexico and Canada, it's about 40%. So 20 percentage points less. You have less of this integration. And I would argue that that really has been a big part of China's strength is that it is an Asian story more than just an individual country story. So the future is Asian rather than Chinese. We've had a number of conversations about that. What does that suggest about whether or not the future is North American or, or American, um, Shannon? Now, this to me right now is a very interesting moment. And starting in 2008, 2009, for this last decade, almost 15 years, you have started to see shifts in international supply chains for various reasons. You've started to see shifts because of automation becoming a bigger part of manufacturing and services. You started to see shifts because of demographics. Uh, you know, China and other places aren't as young or as cheap as they used to be in terms of, of labor. You've seen changes begin in the last few years because of climate change issues. People don't want to uh, have things so far apart because of the cost of admissions and the cost of climate change itself affecting the ports in Asia are affecting other infrastructure. You've also started to see huge changes because of geopolitics, right? And especially the hostilities rising between the U.S. and China, the dividing up of various industries, you know, many that are talked about in the, in the chips war and, and that we're looking at sort of the dividing up of that particular industry. So all of this, I would say, yes, you look at Asia in the last three decades have been a real strength for them in terms of manufacturing. You've seen their you know, slice of global manufacturing go from 20, 25% to almost 50%. But right now I see a real fluidity in global supply chains for all of these reasons where North America could be a big beneficiary. There's lots of reasons why we could see the United States and North America benefit. You know, low cost labor is less important than it used to be. Some of these geopolitical divides mean more will come back towards the United States because it is one of it is the biggest consumer market and sort of final market, at least for right now. But what I would say is the benefits of international supply chains of regionalization are just not going to go away in terms of productivity, in terms of profitability. So but no if, one would argue that. I mean, even even the most radical analysts of globalization aren't denying regionalization. I mean, they're not denying that uh, America um, trades with Mexico or Argentina or Brazil. So I, I don't really understand why um, there should be any incompatibility between the idea of globalization and the idea of regionalization. There's, there's not an incompatibility, but they are different things. And I think they're guided by different mechanisms. Um, and what you have found, and I think what companies have found often is for higher profitability, uh, for but also access to, to bigger markets, this internationalization, but regionalization versus globalization. In fact, 
the costs as you go further abroad rise. And you know, there's a report by McKinsey, they've dubbed it the globalization penalty. And they find that companies, when they go abroad, they become more profitable. But the further they go abroad, actually the less profitable they get. Uh, so I think there's an interesting dynamic there on the company level on just basic profits and losses uh, that leads and leans towards regionalization versus globalization. So the dichotomy isn't that you can't, you can have both um, and we do have both. But what's interesting and I think less understood is that we have had more regionalization than globalization. And that is where the profitability has come from. That has worked for companies being profitable, but also for countries to become more sophisticated, to climb the value added chain, to move from a lower middle income country to a wealthy country. Regionalization has been a big aspect of that, much more than globalization has. What about the, the issue of neoliberalism? Uh, as I said, we, um, the Gerstle books on the FT shortlist, really, I, I'm not sure if you've read, it's a really interesting book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. I mean, your definition of regionalism and globalization, they're both compatible with neoliberalism. They're both rooted in the idea of free trade. Is that fair? You know, we have seen this movement without a lot of free trade. Yes, we have seen free trade. Um, and we have, you know, in the 90s, especially the 2000s. I haven't read this book yet, so it's on my list now. I'm going to take it. Yeah, so. you should. It's very good, actually. But you don't necessarily need that. In fact, when you look at the Asian story and, and moving these countries together, many of these countries had very strong industrial policies during this time. But they also saw benefits from internationalizing and particularly internationalizing with their neighbors. Uh, so I think there is space for both of these. And what I would say, we're seeing lots of, you know, talk of, of industrial policy back on the rise and not just talk, but, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars being put behind it. Um, you know, one of the statistics I've been looking at recently is a study that came out of Geneva. And we've seen almost 20,000 subsidies put in place between the US, EU and China and pretty evenly divided over the last you know, 15 years. So you're seeing this real movement um, away from freer trade, away from you know, freer economies uh, for lots of good reasons, you know, reasons of climate change and, and reasons of domestic equity and reasons of economic competitiveness, all these reasons. But that doesn't mean that the benefits are gone. I do think that the central tenet we've seen from international supply chains, which tend to be much more regional than global, um, so they're not necessarily global supply chains, they're regional supply chains, that this is not going to fade away. It may be in certain national security areas, like in semiconductor chips, there's a reason to really bring it all home and you can pay for it, or at least big economies can. But so many other industries, so many other kinds of products you have to make a profit and to be sustainable over the long term. I do think this regional aspect, we'll see a doubling down on this and a leaning even more regional than we have over this last 30 years in this you know, neoliberal era that he describes. In a way, this is quite a technical conversation for economists, but it has enormous political ramifications, as I'm sure you know. Um, I mentioned uh, the, the idea of the future being Asian. Parag Khanna has a book out about that. I'm sure you're familiar with the work. What are the political ramifications, Shannon, of your argument? If indeed you're right, and globalization is to some extent a myth, and regions matter more than globalization, how, how, what does that say to Trump and indeed to Biden and their obsession with China? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think it says this. It says that not all trade is created equal. And I think that's actually important for U.S.-based companies and then U.S.-based workers. And we tend to think of, and you look at our political debates, you know, Trump would say, you know, NAFTA is the worst deal ever and, and he worries about other countries. But what you find when you look at the economic data is that trade with Mexico and Canada, trade under NAFTA and now the USMCA, which is the new agreement that has replaced it, that this trade actually protects and even creates jobs while trade with places like China does it much less. And the reason for this is again, international supply chain. So when a factory opens in Mexico, that factory is much more likely to buy from US-based suppliers, US-based factories, and then keep those workers employed. And you know, we see that the imports that come to the United States from Mexico, 40% of the value of those imports was actually made in the United States. So you have a huge part of US component of the things that Mexico is exporting to the world. When a factory opens in China, almost none of the suppliers are based in the United States. And anything that's coming in from China, the average you know, US part of that product sort of valued from the US is less than 5%. So basically- Well, what about if it's an Apple factory and all the, and all the IP is coming from the US, which is- so That's the one value. thing it is. But if you look at all of China's exports, uh, only 5%, less than 5%, is from the United States, and that is Apple. That 5%, it's spread out over their whole, you know, everything that's coming in, but there's a very little amount, and Apple is that one part, right, or a couple other places. So, but none of the parts, none of these other things are, are value-added, are made in the United States. So it's a very different relationship uh, in terms of what it means for U.S. workers and what it means for, for U.S.-based companies. Um, the other so, thing- so, so, but, but translate this into into simple political terms we've done a number of shows on china and the united states and what what americans would call the china question i guess what the chinese would call the american question we had one writer c fred bergsten i'm sure you're familiar with his work who basically argue that it's in both the american and the chinese interest to work together in our globalized economy are you saying that's not really true, that they're existing in parallel, so they don't really matter that much to each other and that they should focus on, China should focus on its relations with other Asian countries and America should, uh, United States should focus on its economic relations with Central American and South American countries as well as Canada? I'm saying that they have different effects. There are reasons to make things for the lowest cost producer um, so that you have the lowest prices and you can bring things in. There are also reasons to try to create and protect jobs in the United States. And to do that, trade that's nearby is, is much more likely to do so than trade with China. So I think there is different costs and benefits of different kinds of um, the other thing that's very different is we do have a free trade agreement with our neighbors and we have a free trade agreements with much of the Western hemisphere. That's not the case with the rest of the world. The United States has very few global free trade agreements. We have access, preferred access. So, you know, trade agreements with less than 10% of the world's GDP. Uh, and there, you know, if you don't have a free trade agreement, you, you don't set the rules. You don't lay down, you know, labor standards, environmental standards or low tariffs or all kinds of other things. Um, that make it expensive for the United States to export uh, or to, you know, to be competitive in those markets. So it's not that trade from China is necessarily bad or trade from if, you know, if you want low cost prices, if you want other aspects. But if your goal is to create U.S.-based factories, to create U.S.-based jobs, then different kinds of trade matter in, in different ways. 
Shannon, your day job, as I said, is uh, you're the vice president and deputy director of studies uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations, um, expert in Latin American studies in New York. You know that this subject is political kryptonite. It has, in, I mean, when you get beyond some of the, the technicalities, it has enormous significance in terms of how America thinks of itself. What are the implications of what you're suggesting, for example, on the debate in the United States about immigration? From, big... Particularly from Central America, where, you know, where most uh, American uh, wannabe immigrants come from and where all the, all, all the politics, all the complexity and the anger and the animosity of the politics exists. So there's a few aspects here. One is if you regionalized, if you set up and you incentivize supply chains across the region, then you would have production in places in Central America and Mexico and other places where, where migrants come from. Uh, and this economic activity there, which is tied to economic activity here, at least would provide some measure of jobs and economic opportunities in those countries. So perhaps fewer migrants would come. So that's one part. But another part of this is if we wanna be globally competitive with these other regions that have formed, if we want to really double down on international supply chains as the way to go so that we create higher quality products at lower prices where we can compete, not just in the US market, but we can compete in global markets all around the world. Um, then we also have to not just let those pieces and parts, the inputs move across borders, we're going to have to think about letting people move across the borders, right? The workers or the technicians or the managers, as the parts on the supply chain move, so does the knowledge, right? The, techno the, the expertise need to also move around. So a very restrictive immigration policy is going to make it hard, just as a restrictive border makes it very hard to move goods across. So I think that's, that's one aspect where, as you say, it's kryptonite right now. Nobody wants to talk about uh, workers, guest workers, any kinds of programs, but it is important if you're thinking about producing things internationally, it's not just the physical goods, it's also the people um, that need to be able to move as well. Who's likely to be able to take your argument and make it politically palatable? Is it the left? Is it conservatives? I mean, right now, any kind of trade seems to be, a, you know, an orphan within our within our legislature, within the Congress. Nobody wants to touch this. Though I do think there are many issues on the table where you could start. Uh, so we have decided, and this has been fairly bipartisan, that there are particular industries that are national security risks. Semiconductors are one. There's lots of talk about pharmaceuticals, medicines, and medical devices. Talk about electric vehicle batteries, as well as a whole host of critical minerals, rare earths, and other things. And as the U.S. decides that they want to make sure they have secure supply chains for these industries and perhaps others, um, and secure meaning not touching China at this point, um, they're going to find they can't just do it in the United States. Um, you don't have access to some of the natural resources. You don't have access to some of the expertise or the economies of scale. You also, in terms of resiliency of supply chains, putting everything in one place makes them vulnerable to geographic things, to natural disasters, to other kinds of, of issues. So these particular places where the U.S. government is putting tens of billions of dollars in is thinking we need to create secure supply chains. This is a good place to start thinking about turning to other countries in the Western Hemisphere or other allies um, to, to put these in place. And that, I think, is a place to go. It's not about big free trade agreements, but it's about how do we make sure that the whole semiconductor supply chain is one that we can rely on. 
Shannon, we, we, of course, in America, we only think of things from an American point of view. Let's turn this issue of the globalization myth on its head. You're an expert on Latin America. What should this mean for Brazil or Argentina or Mexico? There's just been a, an incredibly controversial, difficult election in Brazil, for example. I'm guessing that Lula would be much more sympathetic to your argument uh, than Bolsonaro, who's a hardcore Trumpian nationalist. What, what, if, if Lula, or, uh, or, Lula or, or the Mexican president, and we, we just did a show actually on Mexico, uh, if they picked up your book and, and believed in it, how should that reshape their politics and economics and their attitude to the United States? You know, it's the old cliche when America sneezes, Latin America gets pneumonia. But I, I assume in the way you're arguing, everyone gets pneumonia, including the United States. Well, one of the most interesting things, and back to the sort of the beginning point, is that not that many countries participated in this globalization um, and not that many participated in regionalization. I think this helps explain some of the winners and losers we've seen over the last 30 years. And I would say much of South America in particular um, has been a loser. Part of the reason that they have grown slowly, part of the reason that they have not gotten out of the middle income trap is that they have not benefited from this round of, of globalization. They have not regionalized. And so particularly look at South America, less than 15% of their trade goes to their neighbors. And there's lots of reasons for this. Logistics are super expensive. You don't have the infrastructure there. You don't have trade agreements. You don't have some of the relationships that you might've had that would encourage this. But as a result, South America in particular has been left on the ends of global supply chains. They just send out raw materials and commodities and then they bring back finished goods. And they never got into that meteor middle of supply chains that allowed you to have technology transferred to your economies, have expertise in, in terms of people and managerial know-how, very little of that came. And that is the story of Asia and how countries that in the 1950s and 60s were the same per capita level or even lower in Asia. Um, and why Latin America has in many ways been left- but, but, but I, I take that point, but you know, this is an age old debate amongst political scientists and sociologists and economists. What, why did Singapore or South Korea or Japan or China, why did they succeed and Brazil or Argentina or Mexico? Not a lot of people don't look at that in terms of supply chain or regionalization. They see it in cultural terms. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons out there, but I would actually turn to some of these economic issues and the, the seeding of factories, of business, of parts in supply chains, first by the Japanese into the poor South Korean and Taiwanese markets, then later on, which brought technology, it brought know-how, it brought expertise, it created factories that then, as they climbed the value-added chain, they went out and seeded. These ties together, to me, are one of the factors why you saw Asia succeed. And one of the reasons with Latin America or Africa or the Middle East or South Asia, where you see countries not turn to their neighbors, not having, in the case of Asia, not having, you know, CEOs and having big companies come in and, and make those investments in ways that integrated the region. I think that was a cost for, for other parts of the world. Talking of political kryptonite, um, uh, Shannon, um, I'm guessing that if your book gets picked up in the United Kingdom by either the Brexit crowd or the anti-Brexit crowd, it will really get them riled up because yeah. it suggests that the Brexit people were out of their mind. Is that fair? 
that is fair. I would say that was probably the the, the worst decision or one of the worst decisions that's made. In, in and you don't need to convince me of that one. I mean, I'm not a, a, an economist like you, but it seems self-evident that Britain was profoundly shooting, not only shooting itself in the foot, but in the groin and in the head by leaving Europe. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting stories and coming out of the research that I did for the book was uh, was from Europe. And, and it is one that I think is a hopeful story for the United States as you're trying to sell this, say, in the U.S. political system. And that was the story of, of Zara. Zara is the world's biggest fast fashion brand. Um, there's stores all over. Um, they sell Spanish, Spanish owned company originally. Spanish owned brand. So they make all kinds of women's clothes, men's clothes, kids' clothes. They sell half a trillion dollars worth of goods every year. So it's the biggest fashion brand. And they are the most profitable of all fast fashion brands out there. So more profitable than H&M or Topshop or The Gap or name your, name your favorite brand. And the way they do this, their secret to their success is they don't make things in Asia. They make it all in Europe. So they have found a model where they can make their clothing uh, in, you know, high wage, high labor protection economies and make it the most profitable fast fashion brand and the biggest all over the world. And they do this through a mix of automation, through flexibility, through small batches, not huge batches, by getting things to stores quickly because they don't have to wait for a container to get across the ocean from Asia uh, and getting feedback from their stores to adapt their designs. And through that, they don't have to discount or not to the extent of others. So as I look at this for the United States and, and for the rest of Europe, and unfortunately maybe not for Britain since they've decided to opt out, but I do think that there's no, there doesn't have to be a race to the bottom here. And regionalization is one way where you can get to better outcomes for workers and companies, but still be very profitable um, for those that need to, that in the end are about their bottom lines. It's funny, Shannon, on the one hand, listening to your argument, I think populists would be angered, the, the Brexit crowd would be angered. On the other hand, you are uh, reintegrating geography back into the argument. So, so, so what do you think of the, the populist take on economics, almost this, this autarkic take on economics? Um, does it fit your argument or is it antithetical or is it more complicated? So my argument would be that geography never left. And while we tended to think the world was flat and things would go anywhere, in reality, over these last 30, 40 years, it didn't do that. It didn't do that because of perhaps legal reasons. You know, if you go too far away, you don't understand the new system. It didn't have to do that because of trust reasons, because of cultural reasons. Um, but whatever the various parts, because of free trade agreements, you know, people tend to have free trade agreements with their neighbors. So it's easier to trade with those countries. It didn't have to do it because of industrial clusters that happen across these countries. But whatever the reasons, the reality is the world never globalized as much as it regionalized. Sure, there are some global things, but, but regionalization was a much stronger force. So my argument is that what has actually happened is different than, than we often see. Um, the other part of the argument, though, is that autarky is not the, not the way to go. And, and I think some of the challenges, at least in the United States, we've had is uh, we have tended to be a little bit more protectionist. We've been less uh, willing to engage or even embrace our neighbors on, on commercial transactions and thinking about things. And that actually has held us back because in the end, I think it boils down to this. Do you want a bigger slice of a smaller pie? So do you want 
with protection to just to have a bigger part of the U.S. economy that you sell into. Um, but that economy will be shrinking if, if your products are more expensive and people wait to buy a car for six months or, or don't replace their dishwasher or what have you. Or do you want access to the 8 billion consumers who are out there broadly and, and the chances to compete for, for their dollars or their pesos or, or their animbis? Um, and to do that, to have products that are you know, high quality but also affordable, one country can't do it alone anymore. Manufacturing has become a team sport and so you need your partners. And I would argue that it's easier for lots of reasons that have already become apparent over the last 30 years uh, to do that with your neighbors. What about the sort of the, the longer term vision here? If globalization is a myth and your argument is right and regions are still the core reality of our economic life, is that going to be the case in 2050? Isn't globalization inevitable in the long run? That's where I'm actually not sure. We thought it was inevitable over these last 30, 40 years. And, you know, as I said, there's only about two dozen economies who have that have transformed with globalization that have really opened up and seen trade. But with digitalization, with improvements in transportation, with all these other revolutionary technologies, isn't globalization inevitable in, in, in the long run? Although, you know, as another economist famously said, in the long run, the only thing that's we're certain dead. is we're all dead. Yes. You know, there's there's cross-cutting currents there. Sure, you know, transportation. What we've seen over the last 30, 40 years is transportation costs came down dramatically with containers. Uh, digital costs came down dramatically with, you know, Skype and Zoom and every other platform. Uh all of these things change, and yet we did not globalize. And now you see pressures moving the other direction. You see automation. So why would you produce on the other side of the world if you can just make it um, with an additive printer in your living room? Um, you, we have you know, differences in climate change. People care about oh, this. Well, it's good you brought up climate change, Shannon, because that's where I want to end. You've done a lot of thinking about this. You were just on Bloomberg talking about COP27 and, and Brazil, um, lots of uh, lots of pieces you've been quoted in, in famous handshake uh, featuring uh, Emmanuel Macron, who actually was a, a previous guest on this show. The environment, of course, does escape geography, for better or worse. That's a reality. What does this mean for the issue of the environment? If you are indeed right about the globalization myth, that's not true for the environment, is it? I mean, pollution in China or in America affects China and America. It travels around the world. I mean, the effects of these things travel around the world. And then the question is the policies that we put in place to try to combat climate change. If we put in things like carbon border adjustment taxes, where depending on how things are produced and the emissions of those things, you'll be charged coming into particular countries an extra tax. If we start putting in other sorts of taxes for every mile that's transported on a container because that actually produces emissions, um, then you could see an even more regionalization because there will be costs for making things. Every mile further away something is made will have an actual cost on that final good. So I think that too, uh, is something that will tend to regionalize versus globalize because of policies. As people try to combat climate change, as the green transition picks up speed, or hopefully it picks up speed, um, we will see the global side of things shrink a bit uh, in order to combat that. So, so you're saying that all these 
global accords, the Paris Accord, the all, all, all the United Nations driven stuff that that, that 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 isn't actually a reality. That isn't doesn't really reflect not just our economic reality, but even our environmental reality. Well, I think those accords do. It's what are those accords? Countries are giving are making pledges saying that they're going to reduce their carbon emissions by a certain amount. And then they go home and they try to figure out how do I reduce those things a certain amount. Companies say they're going to reduce their carbon footprints and then they go back and say, OK, how am I going to do that? One way to do that is to not buy things from so far away, to not ship things across the oceans, because that is a footprint, a carbon footprint, and it's ways to reduce it. Um, so I think that, yes, if you have global accords, we can have global accords, and, and those are quite important in this. We are also going to see coalitions of the willing, or we're going to see certain groups come together and form other kinds of accords, right? They're going to decide the way we make our steel, our cement, our aluminum is uh, low low carbon emissions, but those other countries don't do a low carbon emissions. So we're going to tax them if they send their steel into our country. So that too, I think, will divide the world up in ways um, that will not be necessarily totally geographic, but will divide up the world in ways that leads to somewhat of this regionalization as well. We'll see a fragmentation because of the implementation of these pledges um, that, are, that have been made on the global stage at these various uh, multilateral forums. Interesting stuff. Tip O'Neill famously said, all politics is local. Maybe uh, Shannon O'Neill is saying all economics is local too, or at least regional, and that globalization is a myth. It's a very intriguing, counterintuitive argument. Congratulations, Shannon, on that. The book's just out, so I think uh, all, all globalization and anti-globalization geeks are going to have to read it. Uh, so congratulations, Shannon. Maybe it'll be... Uh, shortlisted for the FT book of the business book of the year award for 2023. I certainly hope so. Uh, what else are you reading these days, Shannon? What are, What's keeping you entertained or intrigued? I hope not just books on globalization and regional. Yeah. Well, as I said, I'm, I'm into the chips war book right now. So that's all. Yeah. That's yeah. He's, uh, he's hot. Mr. Chips, Chris Miller. He's excellent. He's actually, he's my tip to win the FT award. Yeah. It's a great book so far as I read. Um, in terms of other things, I try to get out of this policy space because, you know, we all need a little break from it. So the book I've been reading recently or just finished, which I'm a little late to the game on this, but is the book uh, Circe um, by Madeline Miller, which is a great retelling of the Odyssey. Um, so for any of you, you know, Greek mythology geeks out there, it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. It's a novel. So 